Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. We have allowed ourselves to become so disconnected and ignorant about something that is as intimate as the food that we eat. Be prepared to grow your own for victory. God said I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink foamed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. Hello and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I'm your host, Harold Thornbro, and I'm glad you're joining me again today. This is episode 112, January 27th, 2019, and today we're going to have a discussion with John Moody. He's the author of The Frugal Homesteader, and we'll get into that in a minute. But first, how about some homestead updates? Well, I have one major, major homestead update, and that is that it's really cold outside with more ice and snow in the forecast. Man, I've been dealing with frozen water bottles and bowls a couple times a day. Uh, At this point, I've just decided I'm only going to try to keep the cooler weather crops alive in the greenhouse because I had tomatoes growing in there. It's going to be too expensive to keep that greenhouse warm enough for those. Uh, I mean, we've been getting below zero, uh, you know, quite a bit, and we're going to be way below zero here in a couple days. So I'm just giving up on those plants. Um, They're not going to make it. I'm sure of that. Right now, they're still alive, but I'm just, uh, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to focus on lettuce, spinach, kale, you know, those kind of things that, that grow really good, even when it's cooler outside, even if it gets into the teens in the greenhouse, even with heat going in there, it's dropped down into the, uh, you know, 20s uh, a few times, and I'm just not going to fight it. So I expect it to uh, possibly drop down into the teens in there <laughs> you know, these next few days. So they'll probably stay alive all right. I mean, I've, I've done that in the past, and as long as they're good and, and, and fully grown uh, when it starts, they'll stay alive. They don't really grow in that kind of weather but they'll stay alive. So I'm not really worried about that, but man, it's just been cold. You know, this has turned out to be a cold winter and we got a lot, a long way to go yet. So, but I'm, you know, spring's just around the corner. We'll just tough it out. (laughs) Uh, Let's just jump right into it. Today, I'm having a discussion with John Moody. Like I said, he's the author of The Frugal Homesteader. You know, John discovered more than a decade ago that his diet was killing him. Uh, He had uh, duodenal ulcers, uh, seasonal allergies that were just horrible, other health problems. And um, his family began to transition to local foods and local f- food distribution. And eventually he relocated his family to 35 acres of land and put his learning into practice. He's also the founder of Whole Life Buying Club. Uh, he speaks at a lot of local and regional and national events on food, farming, and nutrition. He is the author of the Frugal Homesteader Handbook, which is the main reason I wanted him on uh, the uh, the podcast because I got his book right here in front of me, and he has uh, also has three books uh, forthcoming uh, that'll help you know gardeners and, and homesteaders, and he real soon he'll have one coming out on weed control and another one out on elderberry. So really looking forward 
uh, to all that he has going on in the future. And, and he's here to talk to us today about all the things he's doing. And, and uh, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. So let's just jump right into it. Well, John, welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I, I have your book actually right here in front of me. I've been kind of burning through that. I ain't all the way through it yet, but I've been really enjoying that. And I guess what I want to know is, uh, how did John Moody, uh, get started going down this path and then eventually end up, uh, you know, where he's at on a, on a homestead and writing books about frugal homesteading? <laughs> you know, well, as some people have heard me talk before say, and as people who know me from, you know, basically the first half of my life, I am like the most, um, you would never have predicted that I would become a homesteader. Um, I, I'm like the least likely homesteader there ever was to homestead. Uh, so I, I grew up in the, the lower west side of Youngstown, Ohio, um, in northeast Ohio, just total city, city dwelling, video game playing, um, pasty white cartoon watching. 1980s. And so in my early 20s, I developed some significant health conditions. Um, and doctors couldn't do anything really to help me. They just wanted to put me on medications. And something kind of clicked for me that, you know, it, it must be something in my diet. It must be something in my lifestyle where I shouldn't be 23, 24 years old and facing a lifetime of degenerative diseases and, and yeah. pain and endless medications. And you know, when the doctor said to me, well, lots of people your age have problems like this, that convinced me all the more that the doctors did not have the answers I was looking for. Um, mm. it, it did nothing to kind of assuage my concerns. Um, so we started researching food and when you start researching food and how your food is raised and where your food is coming from and what they're doing to your food, well, that naturally leads you to start, you know, looking at farming and raising some of your own food because it's so hard in, you know, typical grocery stores and other places to get your hands on good food anymore. Right. Um, so we started a food buying club in Louisville um, cause that's where we lived at the time was in Louisville, Kentucky. I'd moved down here for master's work and we started with like half a dozen, a dozen friends, just, you know, getting raw milk from one local farmer, cheese from another farmer, splitting a beef cow from another farmer. Mm-hmm. Over the course of about three years, we grew from about a dozen families to about 200 families. Wow. Um, and so the, the buying club is still chugging along. Um, you know, really still, still have that going on, huh? Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, when I lived in Louisville, I did a lot of the day to day running. Um, and at this point, since we no longer live in town, we moved out of the city. We live on 35 acres, about an hour outside. Um, it's, um, one of my best friends in the world and one of the best people I've ever met, my friend Kane Holbrook. He, um, now oversees, kind of a lot of the day-to-day operations and running of the club. Mm-hmm. And so I do I do a whole bunch of different tasks now, including farm audits and sourcing and strategic planning and, um, you know, dealing with technology things and payment processing. And, all the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah all the fun <laughs> stuff. 
I, I do miss seeing the members as much. Um, so, but I also really enjoy living somewhere where it's actually dark at night. Um, <laughs> right. And it's quiet and I can grow things and I can shoot things and I can trap things and I can do all those things that you just can't do in the city. Right, right. Well, let me ask you this now. Is this food buying club, do you, uh, do you find that you, uh, a lot of the things you do are to, uh, say circumvent or get around some of the, the, the local ordinances or laws? Like, I don't know what the laws are in Kentucky for like, um, uh, buying raw milk or something like that. I mean, does it get around a lot of the things like that? Yeah, you know, so the, um, so before I proposed to my wife many years ago, I took her out to eat and, and we're sitting in a restaurant and I look at her and I say, just so you know, um, one day I'm probably going to be put in. <laughs> and, and she, you know, she, she's like starry eyed in love with me because she has bad taste, I guess. <laughs> um, and, you know, so she didn't take me seriously. And so a number of years ago, our buying club was actually raided by the Kentucky State Health Department. Oh, wow. Um, so we were sort of cease and desist and quarantine orders and the whole rigmarole. Uh, and I actually beat the Kentucky State Health Department. Um, mm. And so and, and made them cry uncle that they did not have legal authority to meddle in what we were doing. And because the, the whole reason I started the I started the club really for two reasons. One was the the good quality and the good quality food. In a lot of stores, the farmers are still paid next to nothing for usually. So you have good quality food, you know, at a whole whole paycheck or, uh, you know, but farmers are getting 20 cents on the dollar of what you spent. Mm. So with our buying club for, I guess my daughter's, Abby's our oldest. She's about to turn 13, I think. The buying club when she was just like a month or so old baby. Um, And so buying club's been around now 12, 13 years. And for 12 or 13 straight years, our farmers and suppliers get 80 cents on the dollar of what Mm. our spent. And that was really important to me because it just killed me to walk into these stores and see, um, you know, people spending, you know, $13 a pound on chicken breast and knowing the farmer's getting $3 a pound. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm just like, I'm like, I, I don't need palatial wide aisles with mahogany shelves and like recessed lighting to buy pastured poultry. And, but I suppose uh, also uh, that kind of a difference, uh, money in their pocket, you probably don't have a lot of trouble finding farmers uh, wanting to be involved with uh, with your food buying club, uh, wanting to, to supply the all the, the necessities to, for folks to buy. Huh? Oh, yeah. We, we always have an, an excess of farmers versus uh-huh. and which is um, it, it's something Joel Salatin and I talked about last summer. Um, is, you know, the, the changing face of the food industry and, and just how hard it is because consumers are easily confused. Mm-hmm. So companies take advantage of that every opportunity. Yeah, honestly, it's something I haven't really thought a lot about for the farmer side of it is just how much they're actually getting. I mean, everybody complains about the prices of organic and, you know, grass fed and, you know, uh, just, just all anytime they put a special kind of label on anything and prices go way up. And you, I just hadn't really uh, made that connection that 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 difference really isn't going to the farmer that much. 
Yeah, you know, like the USDA um, keeps track of what's known as food dollars. Um, It's a really interesting infographic, but basically farmers get less than 20 cents on the dollar of what consumers spend on food in America. Hmm. And you have to realize, you know, Americans spend less on food um, both at any other time in American history and they spend less on food than pretty much any other country in the world. Mm. Um, you, you know, so the average American spends, I think it's like eight to 11% of gross income on food. Um, and historically Americans spent closer to like 22 to 32%. And currently all around the world, you know, people spend more like 15 to 30%. Well, we can't have that cutting into our uh, lives, lives of leisure these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but people can't afford pastured eggs, but they can afford, you know, $600 iPhones or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and three vacations a year and everything else, right? Yeah, so so we started this food buying club, and um, some of the things I wanted to offer members, you, you know, because this is back in, you know, 13 years ago. That's like 2005, 2006-ish. You, you know, like a lot of things that are now normal and mainstream just did not exist. Non G, you know, non-GMO feed, um, controlling weeds through oculation and solarization and geotextiles and whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of farmers would look at me like I was from Mars. <laughs> some alien invader saying you you don't have to routinely give animals antibiotics you don't have to spray crops with chemicals to keep bugs from eating them you know um, mm-hmm. all of that is so much more accepted and mainstream and so so since i couldn't convince farmers to do certain things i was like well i'm just going to do them myself like i'll just start a i'll just start a farmer homestead and so we bought what we could afford, which was just an absolutely run down 30-ish acres. Just I, I tried tilling our great because you know I knew nothing when we started for the most part. I grew up hunting, I grew up fishing. Um, I'd cleaned and gutted fish, drove stick shift left-handed since I was like five years old because my dad had a pipeline construction business. So, so I knew a little bit of the outdoors. My dad was a big hunter, fisherman. He had drugged me around all over. We'd go fishing on Lake Erie. So, but, but when it comes to like growing things, I didn't, you know, I mean, we never grew a thing growing up. I don't know if my dad ever ate vegetables. <laughs> I had like four food groups as a kid, you know, like fruity pebbles, these. <laughs> Um, which definitely contributed to my health issues and stuff. Yeah, let's circle back around to that. Uh, you, you believe that it was food that was was causing the problems when you changed your diet? Did all that straighten up and go away? Oh yeah, my my doctor could not believe. Like I had, I you know, I had seasonal allergies so bad growing up. Benadryl sent me free stock options. Hmm. Um, and and now you know I live in the Ohio River Valley, one of the top five first places in the nation for seasonal allergies. I have no allergies. I haven't had allergies in, I don't know, 15 plus years. Amazing. Um, I, I used to have dental cavities all the time. You know, my, my mouth was one string of amalgam fillings. I haven't had a cavity in 15 plus years. 
um, mm. had duodenal ulcers, which which was that was like the straw that broke the camel's back, the duodenal ulcers. Um, and I healed those with food. And when I went into my doctor to get it, he he just he could not fathom that you could sort these problems through, you know, changing changing how your food is raised and how your food is prepared. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I experienced the same thing. I mean, you probably haven't heard my story, but I mean, a few years ago, I, I was diagnosed with uh, stage three colon cancer because of my diet. I mean, I was just, I was eating out constantly during, you know, soda was probably my main source of hydration and uh, you know, it just, it caught up with me after, you know, and at 39 years old, I, I you know, I had cancer and uh, I'm doing a chemo treatment on my 40th birthday, you know, yeah. and uh, things had to change, you know? So yeah, it, it just radical diet. And actually I, you know, uh, and I don't recommend this to people necessarily, but it's what I did because I just felt like it was the right thing for me. But, you know, I dropped out of chemo. I just did a couple rounds of it and I said, you know what? I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to kill my body with this just to try to kill this cancer. And I went radical diet, you know, and just grew my own food and started going down that route. And it, you know, and several years later, I mean, the doctors right. said I was absolutely crazy. Oh, I'm uh, sure. A few years later, and, you know, it's never returned, you know, knock on wood, never does. But, you know, uh, just made some major food differences. And that just blows people away that food can can make those kind of differences. And I've talked to other homesteaders that have the same experiences, you know, with, with food and, and fixing their, their whatever their ailment is. Yeah. It, it, it amazes me, too, because, like, even, you know, there's tons of mainstream medical organizations that say, you know, something like, Two thirds of all really bad diseases people get is because of diet and lifestyle. Yeah. You know, so, so like when we say this to people, it's not like we're saying something crazy. <laughs> right. You, you know, there, you know, it's just like there's a lot of like really good research and information on why this is not crazy talk. Yeah, the doctors didn't even, you know, didn't even disagree. In fact, they were, they were saying that, you know, like, wow, you just been eating horrible. You've not been exercising enough and it, it caught up with you. You know, the doctors knew that. I mean, but yet to fix it, they didn't see changing that being the solution to fix it. You know, they, they wanted to go down this, this treatment path that's, you know, just more poison really. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Which is crazy, but is, it is. Yeah. Right. That's, you know, that's kind of, that's how we ended up you know, becoming homesteaders mm -hmm. and really kind of, yeah, just getting into this crazy world, of growing your own food and being dirty, hot and sweaty. Most of <laughs> you know, and, and, and in the winter time, you dream about seed catalogs, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what breed of chicken or cow you're going to raise this year. So yeah, you went to 35 acres. You took a pretty big plunge there. I mean, uh, I know you got a big family, but yeah, 35 acres is a lot to handle, especially when you're not real experienced with growing food and, and things like that. So you really, you really went all in, didn't you? Yeah. Well, you know, like, um, we originally had hoped to homestead with another family and that kind of fell through because, you know, like mm -hmm. if there's any one thing I would as a homesteader is a family to homestead with. So, you know, cause like people have babies, you know, we've had five babies and cause there, there's so many things that are just so hard to do as a homesteader if you're doing them all by yourself. Mm -hmm. 
And so one reason we have as much land as we do is our original plan was to have another family we were homesteading with. And that just didn't, um, they, they had expressed, they, they thought they had wanted to live out of the city and homestead. And then once they got out here, they realized that's not at all what they wanted for their lives. <laughs> yeah. I could see that being a real blessing, but I could also see that being bringing a lot of trouble to, you know, working, you know, having to just work with another family all the time. I mean, I guess if you got the right, you know, family mix there, it, it'd probably work out, but there would definitely be some challenges in that, I think. Oh yeah. There is like one of the most profitable and successful local farms we know. It's two families basically running this farm together and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And oh, you just get a lot done. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, and, and again, like not only can you get a lot done, but you can also take a break, you know, like, um, you know, when you're a homesteader and you have, you know, like, like, how do you take a week off when you have, because even a simple homestead is a relatively complex thing. Oh, yeah. You, you know, like, I have a high tunnel. If I have two or three species of animals, a high tunnel that has irrigation systems, uh, you know, field crops, like, not just anyone can walk on here and make relative sense of what they see. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, um, my, tw- my 12 year old and 11 year old are really like some of the only people I trust <laughs> to run this place when I need to be gone because I've had, I've had 30 and 35 year old couples come and farm sit for us. And, and that, you know, like, they're just so clueless about food, you know, food and animal care. Mm-hmm. And it always reminds me of Wendell Berry's one quote in one of his books where like the mark of a successful modern person is someone who can explain to you, you know, like the intricacies of male female reproduction and can't figure out how to grow a potato. You, you know, like, like they have they, they you know, they think they're so smart, but their knowledge is basically utterly worthless. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing they can really do with that knowledge. So yes. So yeah. So that's why we have so many acres and, you know, one, one of the big things that's on our agenda for the next 12 to 24 months is we're actually looking to move to a new and different homestead for a bunch of different reasons. And that, you know, moving a farmer homestead is it's as, as one of my friends put it, it's easier getting out of the mafia than <laughs> farming or homesteading. <laughs> so they, they have much easier terms of terms of release. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can uh, it can trap you in and, uh, and 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 be a lot of work. And, and you're right; I think finding people to work on your your homestead is is a real challenge. I get that question a lot. People, I have people that's asked me that on the podcast, and I've tried to answer it and tell them what they can do to you know you know getting farm help and things. And and uh, that is tough. You know, it's a real challenge. And you're right; if you had other people working on the homestead with you, it could definitely uh, lighten that burden and you know give you time away. I mean, if it was something you guys were doing together. It could absolutely make things a lot, uh, a lot easier. Okay. Well, let's just, uh, let's go on to some, some new things. Now you go around, you do it, you speak at a lot of, uh, conferences and, and, and stuff, right? I mean, I've heard you at some different places. Yeah. I, you know, I've spoke, um, Weston A. Price conferences, Mother Earth News Fair, mm-hmm. Aleo FX. Um, yeah. So 
depending on the year and if my wife is pregnant and what else is going on, uh, so, some years I get around a little more than others. Mm-hmm. Especially the old, the older I get, the more earthbound I become. I become more like a carrot, <laughs> deeper and deeper in the ground, and I get. I get less desirous of, of wandering away. <laughs> well, what kind of things do you usually uh, speak on when you go around these conferences? Oh, I speak on whatever I feel most wanting to speak about. <laughs> not, not really uh, going down one, one topic on any of those. Huh? You just kind of go all over the place and wherever you're at at the time, huh? Yeah. Like, you know, um, one of the reasons I love Joel is a couple years ago we were, we were at Polyface for about a week, um, hanging out and visiting and spending some time with the Salsons and their family. And Joel took my family and Daniel's kids up the mountain at Polyface. And, and you know, cause like it, they, they go all the way up the mountain range in the back of the farm, that 400 some acres. And so we get in what Joel co- calls his Tonka truck and he's driving us up the mountain about every 10, 15 minutes, he stops in every 10 or 15 minutes. We get a history lesson or a science lesson or, and it was, it was just one of the most amazing experiences you could ever have. Um, and you know, cause like the thing that impressed me about Joel is he just loves learning. You know, here's a guy who all like, like there is no area of life that he just doesn't find fascinating and awesome. Um, and, and so, you know, I want to be that way. Like if, if something is interesting, uh, a lot of my early speaking was more on food and health. So I used to teach people how to make kombucha mm-hmm. at the Weston A. Price conference. I gave some talks on things like, you know, how to sleep better. I had a talk called like, um, Noise, light, temperature, and sleep. You know, it's just on helping people solve their circadian rhythm problems so they could sleep better, so they could get better. Because mm-hmm. really, really hard to be well if you're not sleeping well. But but then you know, the more I got into homesteading, I've you know, most of my current talks focus on weed control, building soil. So, but you, you know, I get I don't like giving the same talks all the time. Right. Yeah. So I, for Mother Earth at this point, I have about eight different talks I rotate um, so that if I give them one year, I don't give them the next year. I wait a year or two before I give them again. So, you you know, my soil talk I haven't given for a few years. So probably this year or next year, I'll start giving soil talks again. Um, And then obviously, like uh, when I have books coming out, they really want my talks to tie into my books. Mm hmm. So like last fall, a lot of the talks I gave in Kansas and in Pennsylvania um, were talks that tied directly into the, to my new book that had just came out. The the one on frugal homesteading. Yeah. The frugal homesteader. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let's talk about that just for a minute. I know there's some other things we want to talk about too, but um, so I, I was going to ask you, you know, about Joel writing the forward for that book, but I guess I don't really need to, because it sounds like you and Joel are pretty good friends. And uh, I was wondering how you got him to do that, but uh, I guess, Hey, you know, you, you know him pretty well. And uh, boy, I liked what he said about your book though. I mean, he had some really good things to say about it. And uh, so far what I've read in your book, uh, he nailed it pretty good. You, you really deal with a lot with the, it's very um, uh, kids 
centric. I mean, you, you talk a lot about, you know, having your kids working on the homestead and doing certain things, you know, and having tools to fit their hands and things like that. And I, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, as a, as a grandfather, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. Just, you know, having my grandkids, you know, grow up and be able to, to do a lot of the things around here. Oh yeah. Like, you know, partly because when we first started homesteading, I was working in town a lot and, you know, then for a couple years, um, I was executive director of a not-for-profit, and that had me traveling quite a bit. And, you know, just practically speaking, um, I've always believed, you know, that, like, the best education for children is is found in, you know, actually working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our homestead, both out of necessity and out of philosophy, has always been something that is very I used to give a talk at Mother Earth I'll probably end up doing it again this year called the kid ran farm and homestead because you know people would be like you know like I'll be gone for four or five days or you know or you know this spring my wife and I are going to be going to Asheville together for that Mother Earth news fair so we'll be gone for like five days and my 13 year old will run the entire homestead while Mm -hmm. And again, like I, I could not hire somebody probably who will do as good a job as she will. Yeah, I experienced that growing up too, and I look back on that as one of the you know the greatest things of my childhood. You know, um, my dad drove a truck, and 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 uh, you know, so he was gone you know quite a bit. And you know, me and my brother, we had to feed the animals and work the garden and split the firewood and do all those things. You know, we had to do the things that needed to be done even at a pretty young age around around the homestead. So yeah, I get that, and I look back on that, and I have zero regrets about it. I'm very thankful for that time. I learned a lot. It gave me a lot of. Um, uh, responsibility, a uh, feeling of responsibility and, 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 and a feeling of accomplishment too, that you know, you can do those things even at a young age. So, you know, you can do them as an adult, you know, it really gives you some encouragement to be able to do those things when you grow up. Oh yeah. H- having, you know, you, you can learn almost anything if you have a good work ethic and attitude. Mm-hmm, right. So, and you know, we, we have a dearth of work ethic in the country. Um, <laughs> I'd have to agree with that. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, I know. Well, that's one reason it's so hard to find help is people mm-hmm. so not used to working. Um, and so, yeah. So yeah, our, our farm homestead is, uh, and, and you know, like what's really interesting is like a lot of the enterprises, um, they're really not mine. They're the kids, you know? So just last weekend we did our 2019 sit down with the kids and plan out what we're going to grow. Um, because, you know, like, um, I mean, most of my kids in a good year will make a couple thousand dollars as a 12 year old and 11 year old. Wow. And, you know, my, my son grows cherry tomatoes that he sells to a, a couple stores locally and to the buying club. And, you know, so like, we we give our kids opportunities and we help them, you know, but then we help set them up so they can succeed. But like he has to go out there and pick. Right. Yeah. You know, like and, and he learns, you know, but but he he really gets a sense of like this is the relationship between my work ethic and my profit. Um, You know, if if I don't pick enough to fill orders, I only make five dollars instead of twenty five dollars. And judo and other things I want to do 
costs the same amount regardless of what I make. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's better to learn that at a young age too. <laughs> oh yeah, well, oh, oh yeah, and it's just like you know, my daughter, um, for a twelve-year-old, is so very good with money because she's worked for her money. You know, she she's no Doctor Phil episode waiting to happen. Um, where you know these kids go on Doctor Phil, I can't right. survive. $2,500 a month, Ma. You know, it's just like insanity. Wow. Um, and, and so, yeah, just crazy, crazy thing. Sounds like you're really big on, you know, making the uh, the homestead a profitable homestead. I mean, there's a lot of homesteaders, you know, were, like me even. I, I'm less about making a lot of money. It's more about my own individual health and, and whatnot just for me. But you're, you're taking a step further. You've created a farm. You know, you're selling things. Let's talk a little bit about that. How do you make a homestead a, a – you have a, a positive cash flow. So it, um, man, that's a big discussion. Well, you know, the big thing is like the homestead for me is mostly about providing my family with good food mm-hmm. and a good quality of life. A lot of the profitable enterprises are really about the kids. Mm. So, you know, like we raise pigs, we raise four pigs a year. But that's, you know, the reason we raise like only four to six is primarily because, you know, a family of seven, we eat about two pigs a year. So if we raise four, that, you know, the two we sell pay for the two we eat. Right. Um, whereas for the kids, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the profitable stuff like the elderberry business we have, mm-hmm. um, that th- those were primarily started and driven by. You know, again, like the best way to learn math is when when you are going through how much money you made or lost. Right. (laughs) Nothing makes math as real as like, you know, that that situation. Yeah, you turn the numbers into dollars. It means something, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, you know, how you make a homestead profitable, there are all different sorts of ways to get there. Um, And you really just have to figure out based on your gifts, your resources, your opportunities, and your markets, which ones will fit you. Mm-hmm. You know, for some homesteads, it's going to be agritourism of some kind. Um, you know, you, you just might have an incredible location in an incredibly desirable place for people to get away to. And you may be able to slap down a little cabin or already have one you can remodel. And you might be able to rent that thing out 300 days a year for $150 a night. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on. Oh, yeah. Um, or, um, you know, a value added enterprise. So, you know, for us, um, we planted elderberries many, many years ago on our homestead. And, you know, elderberry. It is a, you know, we never knew it was going to become a big thing, but it was something mm-hmm. we're already interested in, um, something we're already growing. And then, you know, a couple years ago, uh, my daughter wanted to kind of transition out of doing chickens and eggs and pullets and stuff. That's what she'd done for a few years. And she tried rabbits a little, but that, that just didn't quite pan out. Um, and, and we're like, Hey, like you could start making elderberry syrup for the buying club. Because the person who had been doing it um, kind of retired, and you know they, they just decided they didn't want to pursue that anymore. And you know, so like this year, um, 
that that enterprise just exploded. We we thought maybe we'd do like ten thousand in sales, and I think we're on track to do like twenty five to thirty thousand. Mm. Are you selling that online and shipping that around, or are you just selling it locally? Um, technically, we're selling locally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really um, good selling locally. But you say technically, so you are shipping some. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I can neither confirm or deny. Oh, I, okay. I, I got you. I got where, you. <laughs> where Elderberry ends up at this point. So <laughs> I got you. <laughs> I'll put it to this one. My daughter is not shipping her Elderberry. Gotcha. Yeah. But if you're not in Kentucky and want to try her Elderberry, we, we have ways to make that happen. <laughs> so, uh, I understand. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. And, and, you know, so but a big thing I tell people, though, is like, um, you know, eat, um, if you're raising beef to sell in the commodity beef chain, you ain't never going to make money. Hmm. Um, if you if if you're raising produce to sell at the auction, you ain't never going to make money uh, like, you, you know, you you need to you need to figure out where people are willing to pay a premium. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, or, or not even so much a premium, or they're willing to pay for a product that actually is going to generate a profit. Mm-hmm. And again, sometimes that product is an experience. Like, you, you know, like, have you heard about these farmers of beautiful flower fields? Yeah. They just charge people to come take pictures in their flower field. Oh, wow. No, I've heard of that. <laughs> no, like, that's like, like, it's crazy. Um you know, you know, a, a good friend of mine, he's getting ready to write what'll be the first ever kind of comprehensive book on agritourism, hmm. homesteaders and farmers. And and him and I were talking about it. And, you know, like th- there's some farmer who, from what I heard, they hired a professional photographer to come out to the farm and people come out to the farm and get pictures taken and the photographer gives the farmer a commission on the photography sessions that the far that you know they do on it like it's amazing. Hmm, that is, you know. And, and then the farmer sells flowers and sells other value added products while people are there, and you know it attracts the kind of people who want you know that they they're off work. It's a Saturday. They want to go do something fun as a family and member mm-hmm. family. Um and and you know like. Um, you know, you, you need to figure out things, uh, you know, cause like competing against commodity beef, commodity grocery stores, whatever, it, it's a losing game. So you're just, you're never going to get there. Yeah. I hear a lot of vineyards doing things like that. You know, they're, they're, you know, bottling, making wine, bottling wine and such, but then they'll, they do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, they'll throw a lot of parties. They have a lot of, uh, they'll do weddings in their vineyards in a barn or a shelter house or something like that. There's a lot of, you know, and they, a lot of their income ends up coming from things like that rather than, you know, growing a vineyard or selling the wine even. Oh yeah. Or, or you know, take pigs. Um, there's a bunch of farmers and homesteaders I now know. Who, um, you know, like in my area, you can buy pastured pork really affordably. You know, so like if you're a small producer trying to raise like six, eight hogs and make a fair bit of money, it's going to be really hard. Because mm-hmm. there's just much bigger operations of cost efficiencies, you know. But I know some homesteaders who raise very few pigs, but they own a hot box. And they will go 
and cater somebody's Fourth of July party or wedding or mm. event, and and you take an item um, that you would have had, you know, maybe maybe you'll get an average price of five bucks a pound for your pork, and, and now you're getting basically like thirteen dollars a pound for your pork. Yeah, by doing this event and value adding, and, and so I think so much of it is for homesteaders like value you know adding value to whatever product you have is just so crucial if you want to be able to make you know some sort of profit from your homesteader farm yeah that's good yeah i agree i mean you really gotta you gotta set yourself apart some way and do something extra that uh that makes that difference yeah i mean i think that may it would help it would definitely uh, help a lot of homesteaders take take that next step take it a little further to be successful, you have to be a smart marketer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like people love my daughter's elderberry syrup business because it's Abby's elderberry. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like, and, you know, Instagram, Facebook, you know, we, we put up pictures of the kids doing elderberry stuff. People just love it. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, like some homesteaders are a little bit reclusive, kind of crotchety. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're not going to be successful in, in those kind of situations and circumstances. Yeah. Social media does play a huge part in homesteading. I mean, on, on sales side of things, especially uh, promotion and, and marketing and things like that. Oh, oh yeah. Like it's, it's never been easier to reach people with your products than it is now. Right. I mean, it's just, you know, there is, there's so much opportunity with so many enterprises if you just learn to take advantage of them. Yeah, the days of just putting a sign up at the end of your driveway and hoping to sell some things, it just, it, it's just it's kind of crazy to not take advantage of those better ways. Yeah, in terms of just being profitable, like it, we do have an advantage because because of the buying club. Anything we raise, I can immediately just put right into the buying club supply chain if we, mm, yeah. Um, and so, you know, big permaculture principle function stacking, you know, another mm-hmm. we did elderberry is because of the buying club. It's just like I already had access to everything other than the elderberries. I already had cost efficiencies and other stuff in place so we could pursue that enterprise successfully. And I, I you know, I think it's really important that people think about that. Um, you know, where can you function stack so that you're far more likely to succeed and you have much lower startup costs? Yeah, I, I agree. That's, that's great advice there. Um, so you got a lot going on. I mean, you're, you're writing great books. You're getting your kids to sell cherry tomatoes and elderberry syrup and, you know, and, and you just got a lot going on. You're speaking at conferences. What, what else you got going on these days? I mean, anything else you're doing? Some, some big projects in the works. So, well, I have, I have three books. I have one book. Hopefully I'll finish this weekend or early next week. Hmm. Um, and that'll be my, my book on, you know, basically weed, you know, Beating weeds for small scale growers and homesteaders. Yeah, it's quite the challenge. <laughs> uh, well, well, you know, you think it is, but it's like, um, you know, it was kind of like with soil. When we moved to our farm, our growing spaces had less than half percent organic matter. Mm. 
And my my soil test results that I just got back um, from doing soil tests this fall, my high tunnel is running close to 50% organic matter because it's a bit high because you really want your high tunnel soil to be more like a potting mix. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then our main field growing space is running 23% organic matter. So you, so you improved it a little bit. Just a little, <laughs> just a little bit. Um and, you know, and I did that because when I, you know, like I threw myself into learning soil the first three, four years we were on our property. Because, um, you know, as I say in the book, I tried to till the soil and the tiller broke before the soil did. <laughs> or, you know, um, and I, I was just so stubborn. I was just like, I'm going to grow things anyway. So I grew things in cardboard boxes until I could figure out how to make soil. Well, you didn't let it stop you. That's good. Um but, you know, then I ran into this issue of weeds and I'm just like, you know, who in July, like in July, I want to be going to the beach. Mm-hmm. I do not want to be spending three, four hours a week. Mm-hmm. I know homesteaders who talk about weeding an hour or two a day. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, I'm like, this is madness. Um, So I threw myself into learning how to beat weeds and over the course of basically two growing seasons we reduced the amount of time we spent weeding by 90 percent and that makes the kids really really happy oh yeah yeah when i was growing up that was probably the thing that i hated the most because you know we always had a garden and you know my dad he wasn't going to pick the weeds he just sent us out to do it and we'd be out there all evening you know pulling weeds oh yeah and and it's and it's one reason kids don't you know one reason a lot of kids get away from homesteading mm-hmm. is because the unenjoyable tasks be, become the dominant things that are given to them. And, and they're kind of like feudal tasks, you know, mucking out a barn from the chickens or, you know, picking all the weeds in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so, so you end up driving your children away from this lifestyle you love, especially as they enter their teens. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, um, yeah, you know, so figuring out how to grow a lot of food and manage a lot of growing space without having to spend a lot of energy on weeding is a lot of what we spent the last two years doing. Um, so that'll be my next book. And then I have a book coming out on elderberry um, and then another one. And then next winter, um, I think, you know, just have a few more pieces to get in place. It should be in February. I'm putting on a conference with Joel Salatin that, that we're calling the rogue food conference. Um, and we're just like so tickled excited about this event because he, he's been talking it up at acres and other places. He's been speaking to gauge interest. And every, every time he mentions it, um, people just seem to go wild. He says, they're just like so super excited about the idea. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be a great conference. What's going to be like the main theme of that conference? Uh, you know, it, it's basically um, circumvention rather than compliance with with government regulation. Yeah, yeah. Kind of reminds me of Joel's book. Was that everything I want to do is illegal? Or yeah, like everything that? I want to do is illegal. And, and folks, this ain't normal. Yeah, right. Um, you know, because it's just like um, we had a farmer here in Kentucky he he was nervous about the pol- you know the he didn't want to have to take chickens 
to the there's only like two or three places in the entire state of Kentucky you can get chickens USDA inspected butchered. Crazy. <laughs> and it's super expensive because, you know, because there's no company. And and it's especially expensive when you factor in all of that time, you know, loading the chickens mm-hmm. on the chickens being transported. And so this farmer really wanted to do on farm processing. Um, he He was a little nervous, though, about doing on farm processing. And I said, hey, I said, why don't we buy the chicks? And we pay you to raise the chickens for us and we pay you to butcher our chickens because if there are chickens, they don't have to be USDA inspected mm. and we can pay you to butcher them for us. And and it was great. You know, like it's it's a it's circumvention rather than compliance. Right. Um, you, you know, you, you find that crack in the regulatory pavement um, or, or, you know, like our whole buying club, it lets us do raw milk. It lets us mm-hmm. unwashed, unrefrigerated eggs. Um, there's just all kinds of great things we can do using a private membership association is, you know, basically what it's called. Like um, there's a person, Joel Met, who has a food church. <laughs> Can't wait to meet this person and hear what they're doing. But they're doing all types of amazing stuff because they've turned it into what they call a food church and, and they have the protections that that affords mm-hmm. um, so that the, you know, the crazy regulatory Gestapo can't mess with them. Yeah, Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that you have to jump through hoops and work around things so much just to, just to do what should be normal, right? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Like, you know, like it, it's amazing to me that that basically you can go to federal prison for selling a pork chop to your neighbor. Yeah, that is just insane. Um, and, and so the whole conference is going to be people from all over the nation who have created really nifty ways to do what they want to do and be successful at it um, without going through the costs and the circus hoops of compliance. Wow. I hope nobody gets arrested at the conference. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- th- thankfully, free speech is still, uh, and, and it will, and the, the, you know, like when the state health department came after us, um, you know, one thing we will talk about at the conference is one of the reasons we've lost so many of these basic rights as homesteaders and farmers is some Dolores Umbridge bureaucrat comes and tells us we can't do something. And we say, okay, we can't do it. And even if they have, even, if, and, and the thing is, once you, once you agree with them, even if the law isn't on their side, you've now given them precedent. Mm-hmm. And so partly, you know, like, um, I have a great friend, Max Kane, who, who has an amazing story of what he did in Wisconsin this way. You know, but like we we need people who are willing to stand up and say, no, like, actually, you're not going to be able to tell me what I can and can't do mm-hmm. um, and, and and be smart enough to make them eventually cry uncle or walk yeah. away, um, and move back to softer targets. 
Yeah. And also be smart enough not to push it so far to where you're blatantly, where you are going to have trouble and you probably aren't going to win. You know, I mean, there's, there's people who push it that far too, to where they're, you know, they could end up in federal prison because they've taken it, you know, beyond what they, you know, could get out of. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, that's one thing too, is like, you have to know, you have to know which kind of envelopes you can push. Mm-hmm, right. Um, cause I, I don't know if you've heard about the Amish farmer here in Kentucky who's currently right. in federal prison. Yeah. You know, I read about that not too long ago and, and I was kind of blown away by that, but yeah, go ahead and what, what exactly happened on that? Well, he, he had some kind of salve that was like yeah. black, bl- bl- like blood root. I, I, um, and, and you know, like, um, you know, he, he, he ran like, you know, the, the labeling people, and the health claims, you know, labeling and health claims mm-hmm. are one of those areas that you just cannot run afoul. Um, you, you know, Wilderness Family Naturals is another small business that just got walloped um, because they had health claims on their, mm-hmm. even though the health claims are supported by studies and stuff. Um, right. And, 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 you know, so, so that's basically what happened to this Amish farmer is he, he had never heard anyone Never had a single complaint about his product, um, but he made health claims and some other stuff about it. And I don't think he really understood what he was getting into when they finally came after him. Right. And so, man, it's just it, it's a shameful story that we have an Amish guy in federal prison. Right. For for selling uh, something from a plant. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's just like, you know. The, the big drug pushers can advertise on the nightly news and on TV. Um, and you know, and you can't sell a self. You're just, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. Well, that's why I really appreciate what you guys are doing, especially, you know, you and Joel and at this conference. And that, that sounds like it's something that's really needed. You know, it sounds like it's going to be a, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that, that want to push things to the limit that want to, you know, I hate these words, get away with some things, but they want to make a difference. And, and this, this is the only way they can do it. So to hear folks talk about some ways they can kind of circumvent the, uh, the rules a little bit and, and do some things to, to make a difference in their lives, make a difference in the lives of others. I think it's a, it could be a very useful, uh, conference. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, the thing to realize is like, you've probably heard about the Wyoming Food Freedom Act. Mm-hmm. what's going on in Maine, you, you know, like a, a lot of what made that possible was, you know, like in Wyoming, people were just doing it anyway. Right. And so eventually the why, you know, enough legislators were just like, we might as well just recognize this before we have a public brouhaha that, that goes badly. Um, you know, and in Maine, people were just doing it. People had, you know, like we want to feed our communities and, and the, the federal government and 500 other regulatory agencies shouldn't make it impossible for me to feed my neighbors. Right. And, and the fact is, if enough people are doing it, those are voters and, uh, you know, they don't want to take off too many people, right? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, and yeah, that's like with, you know, regardless of someone's view on cannabis products, mm-hmm. what, what's driven legalization is, is just the amount of noncompliance. Right. You know, like, like when five or 10% of the population is ignoring you, 
regardless of the laws, that that you know enforcement becomes impossible. Right. Um, and so, you know, and that's part of the smartness of this, you know, it's one reason our buying club was able to win. Mm-hmm. You know, our buying club is like 200 some families, but even if we, you know, even if we're only 50 families, it still would have been, uh, like, like with Vernon Hirschberger's case in Wisconsin. Um, you know, it's, it's just having a small enough critical mass to make a difference. Or taking advantage of something. Again, I, I can't myself wait to learn to see what some of these other people are doing in some areas that are just like really innovative business enterprises that, that let them, you know, pursue a living and do really awesome stuff and benefit their communities while dodging, you know, burdensome and onerous regulations at the same time. Right, right. When, when and where is this conference going to take place? So it's going to be in February 2020. So it's basically right about 13 months out and it's going to be in Cincinnati. Awesome. We'll definitely have to. I really should say it's going to be in, it's going to be at the Cincinnati airport, which is in Kentucky. Oh, we already got a place picked out and everything. It's ready to go, huh? Well, almost. So we, we already, we already have, I think three sponsors. Um, we've just had a bunch of people as soon as they heard about like, I want to sponsor. I want to invest money. I want to make sure this happens because mm-hmm. um, it, it's going to be a hoot of a time. We're going to have a, a really great time. So, well, that's close enough to me that I might have to make an appearance down there. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just going to be, you know, it'll be, a, it's going to be a one day thing on a Saturday, um, and we're going to be done by five o'clock. So you can, you know, get home a little late that night. Yeah. Um, what another reason we chose the Cincinnati airport is to really inexpensive place to fly to i have friends who flew from texas to cincinnati i guess for like around a hundred bucks or less oh yeah yeah Um, and we're we're hoping the ticket price for the event um is going to be you know 79 89 bucks maybe even a little less if we continue to get so many sponsors and stuff just hope for some good weather that time of the year (laughs) yeah that, that is the one thing with february um, it's definitely, as we're finding out this week, minus degrees yeah. is going to be, we're going to be dripping faucets and, um, yeah. putting lights in the well house to keep the well warm. Yep. Things are definitely going to be froze up and it uh, definitely adds to the homestead chores a little bit. And, uh, and you just got to keep an eye on things cause, uh, it don't take much for things to start breaking in that kind of weather. Yeah. See, that's why like, you know, we, we butcher our pigs off. Um, we don't carry animals through winter for the most part because <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to be messing with animals this time of year. Yeah. I, I greatly reduce what I have around here. <laughs> yeah. So it, it always confuses me when I see people who just like, um, they seem to be setting themselves up for punishment. <laughs> yeah. You have to spend a lot more money and a lot more time on them animals when it's that cold outside. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. So our, our pigs went off to the butcher couple weeks ago before real winter hits and the high tunnels sleeping until March or so. So the thing, you know, it, other, other than having to keep bringing in loads and loads of firewood, it's relatively low key around here, thankfully. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I won't tie up any more of your time, but I do want you to kind of take a minute and tell us where we can get your book and find out more about your conferences and you and all the things you're doing and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, if you want a copy of my book, you can um, if you you can get it off Amazon if you want to get off Amazon 
If you want to get a signed copy directly from me, you can go to my website, homesteaderhandbook.com, and just drop me a note, um, and I'll send you details about getting a copy. Um, and I'm on Facebook and stuff, and so, you know, once – once we have a website up for the conference and, and the last of the logistics mm-hmm. figured out over the next few weeks, um, you know, I can circle back, send you that info, sure. send it out to your email list and stuff. And, um, you know, I'll be putting it up on social media and things. And, um, when, when will it be, able to, uh, when can we expect your uh, next book to be uh, out there for sale? Um, the weed book, hopefully I will turn it in to the, to the people I'm working with to do the printing and stuff in the next few days. And I think it only takes them about four to six weeks to turn it around for mm. Um So that book I'm hoping I'll have by the end of April or so. Definitely keep our eye out for that one. That sounds like it's going to be a good one. Yeah. Well, and, and that one I really want people to have going into spring. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I have extensive treatments of how to mulch properly, how to do oculation, how to do solarization, um, all of these just really amazing weed control techniques that most homesteaders have never even heard of or thought about um, that you can do with an extra piece of greenhouse plastic or mm. silage tarp. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you can reduce weeds by 90% in 10 days, you know, patch of ground. I'll definitely be getting my hands on that one. That sounds like <laughs> a really useful uh, book to have on the shelf there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, I hope so. Like it's, um, you know, I I just have these really extensive treatments of how to mulch properly and understanding mulch. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping people will walk away just really in a position to to be just so much more successful as a homesteader or a small scale farmer. Yeah, weeds and bugs are two things that can make you have a real uh, miserable uh, uh, experience in the garden if you don't know how to handle them right. <laughs> yep, exactly. So, man, so thank you so much for having me. You know, maybe maybe we'll do this again sometime. Sure, anytime. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. Good deal. Well, Lord bless you and your family. And, and again, I hope I get to see you sometime soon in person as well. Yeah, yeah, and probably at that conference, if not before then. So <laughs> Great, man. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for coming on, John. We'll talk to you later. Well, there it was, folks. I hope you really enjoyed that. I know you did. I, I certainly enjoyed having a conversation with with John. Uh, great guy. Got a lot of great things, important things going on. Uh, great book. Great author. Um, and I really look forward to that conference he was talking about with Joel Salton and some others. Uh, uh, probably going to be at that one. That just sounds like it's right up my alley. It's not too far from where I live, and uh, I have a feeling I'll be uh, migrating down for that one. If the weather's decent, I mean, uh, February, it could be a little uh, <laughs> bad out at that time. Hopefully not, not too bad to where I can't get down there, but I'm really looking forward to that uh, conference. So I uh, hope you enjoyed it, and uh, make sure you head on over to the show notes for any links on this episode. This is uh you can go to smalltownhomestead.com forward slash 112 for the show notes. And um, until next time, happy homesteading and God bless. Thanks for listening. To see the show notes for this podcast or listen to other podcast episodes, go to smalltownhomestead.com. There you can also read our blog, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, and take advantage of the many resources we make available to help you along in your homesteading journey. Please share this podcast and help us to carry out our mission of helping others to homestead today for a better tomorrow.